If you have your Bibles, you might turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Or you can look along with us in your order of worship as we draw our attention to the Word of God. Well, it goes without saying that this is one of the most unusual Easter Sunday morns that any of us have ever experienced. None of us could have even suspected of even maybe a month ago that we would be live streaming only an Easter morning service. Undoubtedly, the recognition of that this morning is obvious to you as you sit there on your couch, as you gather around a dinner table or wherever it is that you are, that you are presently worshiping in your home. What an unusual Easter morning that this is. For me, I know that for some of you, even the joy of walking through Holy Week together and the expectation of the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ is been somewhat challenging to rise your own mind and awareness to because of some grief and sadness around the fact that you're not here in this room and in this space with me and your brothers and sisters in Christ and we can't hear each other's voices in quite the way that we would want and desire to. That's certainly true. Uh, even for me, as I uh, stand here before you today, there is a real sense of palpable loss in the recognition that this is not the way we would ever want things to be. And yet, with a little reflection upon church history, it's quite clear that this circumstance of which we find ourselves in is not unusual in church history. Thousands and thousands, maybe even millions and millions of Christians throughout the ages have worship the Lord on His day in homes, whether because of war or persecution or plague, they find themselves unable to be able to gather publicly and lift up voices to the praise of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord has used moments like this in the life of His church as a means by which to grow His people. We have examples even in the modern era of Nations that have in large portion turned to the Lord Jesus Christ. Many conversions that have happened through small gatherings of house churches. Where people have read the word of God together, prayed, fellowshiped, and longed for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ to reign over all of the earth. It has been my prayer and I know it's been the prayer of a number of you and I pray increasingly of all of us that the Lord would be using this strange and unusual time not as a moment for us to simply wish it were different but as a powerful opportunity to make the name of the Lord Jesus Christ known and for the Christ for Christ's church to be revived in all of the world oh that God would be pleased to use even this Easter morn in a very special way in a ministry in your life and in the life of all of us who are participating in this worship service and thousands of worship services that are taking place right now all across our land and all across the world. That the Lord would use this season 
as a means by which to prepare us for a great showing and power of his gospel in the Spirit. I know the Apostle Paul, as he is writing here to the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 3, he speaks to them of the reason that they should have confidence. Confidence in a time of struggle and in persecution. He having confidence in a time where he is under house arrest. Confidence because the empty tomb is really empty. It's not just a metaphor. It's not just a positive thought. There was a man named the Lord Jesus Christ who died and he has risen from the dead. It's a historical reality. And we, all of us, live in a world where a man came back from the grave. And that man is the savior of this world. And that should give us hope no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in this morning. As we look at Philippians chapter 3 together, I want to ask you the question, where is your confidence this morning as you come before the Lord? Where is your confidence this morning as you come before the Lord? With that question, let's look together at Philippians chapter 3 beginning in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, For if anyone else thinks he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. For the sake of Christ, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we now come before this, your word, on Easter Sunday with our hearts expectant to hear from you, knowing, O Lord, that you right now 
Promise to send your Holy Spirit where two or three are gathered together. And may indeed, Lord, it is numbers that small in many of our cases. And yet we trust, Lord, that through the oddness of the situations, through the strangeness of where we find ourselves, the same gospel is here. The same reality of the empty tomb is here. Nothing has changed. And we would ask that you would make that reality known to our hearts and the power of that resurrection and this gospel as we consider closely now your word from Philippians chapter 3. Come and meet with us, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it may have been one of those words that at another point in time you would have just ran across without hardly a thought. But I have to imagine that some of you, when I read verse 1 of Philippians chapter 3, maybe paused over that word, safe. Paul is concerned as he writes to the church at Philippi about their safety. And that is a word that you and I have learned to use a lot over the last month or so. We've been paying very close attention to our safety as the Center for Disease Control and government officials are telling us how to remain safe, to keep social distance, to not gather in too large of groups, to keep COVID-19 as much as possible at bay. We want to help keep people from getting this virus and spreading it further. Maybe you saw that word and you thought, I'm really glad the Apostle Paul is concerned about my safety because I'm concerned about my safety. Well, I can assure you that Paul, the Lord Jesus Christ, God himself this morning is concerned about your safety, but not the kind of safety that you're thinking about. Paul here is not speaking about a physical safety. He's not talking about washing hands and keeping six feet from one another. He's talking about a much more important kind of safety. He's speaking to us about a spiritual safety. A spiritual safety. A safety that is not about, hopefully, keeping ourselves from getting sick and maybe prolonging our life a little bit, but a kind of safety where eternity hangs in the balance, where our eternal life, our relationship with God, our life after death, and the reality of our lives even presently is at stake. It's the most important kind of safety that any of us could give our attention to this morning. Now knowing that to be Paul's aim as he begins here in chapter 3, of Philippians, knowing that he's concerned about our safety, it's not surprising that he says to us, there is a threat. There's a great threat. It's a threat for your soul. And church at Philippi, church of Cornerstone Presbyterian Church, I want you to be aware of this great threat, this threat for your soul. He actually sounds, doesn't he, a little bit like a, like a mother who's watching over a two-year-old who's just tried to run out into the street. He says, look out. He says it three times right there in verse 2. Look out. There's, there's something coming your way that has the possibility of destroying you. And interestingly, isn't it? Paul surprises us with his words. In verse 2, he says to us, look out for the dogs. 
Now, as you hear a mention of a dog, a reference to a dog right now, as odd as this is, some of you might have a dog with you. He may be resting at your feet or sitting right beside you at, on the couch. And you're thinking to yourself, it's nice of the Apostle Paul to include my furry friend in the Scripture this morning as we celebrate on Easter morning. But I can assure you, Paul is not meaning that about your Labrador or your Golden Retriever. He's not talking about a domesticated pet, the man's best friend, as we have come to call him. No, 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 he's talking about those mangy, scavenger kind of dogs that roamed the streets in the first century in eastern cities. The kind of dogs that posed a threat to the well-being of the community. The kind of dogs that indeed carried diseases and often were known to attack. He says, look out for the dogs. And as he says that, he's speaking. I hope that you can hear his heart. He's speaking like a shepherd. He says, I want you to know, sheep, flock of God, I I know that you may be unaware, you may be oblivious to the threat that is around you, and I want you to look out. I want to give you eyes to see that there is a major threat on the horizon for your soul. There's a dog, there are dogs that are coming, and they come to destroy your spiritual life. And hopefully you, as a reader, are asking yourself, I want to know, What do they look like? What are they up to? Who are these dogs? And he describes them here, um, not in the most friendly of terms, does he? They, They are those who are evildoers, he said. They are mutilators of the flesh. You may say to yourself, good grief. Who are these people? This sounds something like a horror movie, as the Apostle Paul is describing it. These These folks are mutilators of the flesh. Well, it's a graphic description, isn't it? The Apostle Paul is wanting to highlight the risk here and acknowledge before you that he wants to try to keep you safe from these people. Who are these mutilators of the flesh? Well, they're not serial killers. Not not in the physical sense of the term. They're spiritual killers. These These are Judaizers. They are in the first century here in the context of which the Apostle Paul is writing. They are those Jewish teachers known for infiltrating Christian communities and praying. That's P-R-E-Y, not P-R-A-Y. Praying upon new and unsuspecting and maybe unskilled, unlearned Christians, naive in their faith, coming alongside them and saying something To this effect, so you've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, that's great. I'm glad to hear that. Well, you've got to start somewhere, I guess. You've got at least to to point one, to step one. Let me tell you about step two, if you really want God to be pleased with you. If you really want a strong standing with the Lord. Let me tell you about step two, but not just step two. Let me tell you about step three and step four and, and step 104. These Judaizers were those, in other words who were stepping into the lives of Christians across the Middle East at this moment, and they were adding to the gospel of Jesus Christ works. These were the Christ plus people. The Christ plus people. They were adding to Christ certain works of the law. And they were saying to those, advancing towards those who would listen to them, listen, if you really want to be in 
a good place with God, if you want him to be smiling upon you and happy with you, you're, you're going to have to add a whole bunch of works to your trusting in Christ. You're just getting started in this thing called salvation. One of the works that they prized so much was the work of circumcision. Which is why the Apostle Paul here is referring to them as mutilators of the flesh. Yes, it's a graphic picture. Paul is saying they're taking that gracious sign that was given long ago to Abraham in Genesis 17. A sign of God's promise that he would save for himself a people. That he would honor his promises and bless all the families of the earth in and through the seed of Abraham. This gracious promise where he was confirming himself to the people of God. They were taking that promise and they were saying, this is our badge of honor. This is the way that we distinguish ourselves as elite Christians, as those who are true blue Christians. And Paul is saying, listen, I don't even want to call what these men believe about circumcision, circumcision, because they've so twisted the understanding of circumcision. What they're talking about is mutilation of the flesh. It's not circumcision at all. For real circumcision has to do with grace. It has to do with the heart. It has to do with God's promises and His kindness. That He is the one saving for Himself a people. Circumcision has to do with the faithfulness of God. Not the faithfulness of man. And Paul says, I'm not even going to call it circumcision. It's nothing more than what the prophets of Baal did. When they gathered before the altar and they slashed themselves... And were were bleeding on Mount Carmel, calling down upon their false god to take notice of them. to, To come down and to fire up this altar and prove his existence. They were working in order to get notice and acceptance from their god. He says that's essentially what this is. This is paganism. These Judaistic teachers are not just... Mistaking a few peripheral ideas in theology. They just, it wasn't that they had a little different perspective on the end times. It wasn't that they had a friendly sparring d- debate over aspects of, of theological minutiae. No, no, no. They were missing the entirety of the boat of salvation. They were preaching a false gospel. What is the gospel? Well, what is the gospel? Well, the gospel clearly states, simply understood, is that our standing and our acceptance before God is not based on anything that we do. It's not based on anything that we do. Heaven knows, really heaven knows. Heaven knows that there's nothing we could ever do to be worthy of gaining and extending an acceptance with God. And so what did our God do? Well, because He knew that and because He loved us, He sent His only Son to us, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus came as our substitute. He was born perfect. He lived a perfect and sinless life. And then in love for us, He gave Himself up on the cross. And when he gave himself up on the cross, he wasn't merely giving us an example of his love for us. He was receiving from his Father 
the penalty for our sins. The wrath of God towards sin. He was receiving what we should have received. And he did it not because he deserved it, but because he loved us and wanted to save us. And he knew there was no way that we could bear that punishment and live. And on this day, this Easter Sunday, this resurrection day, when he came forth from the grave after having died and paid the penalty of our sins... When he raised again from the dead, it was a picture of the fact that he was victorious and that he had been vindicated. That his mission had been accomplished. That he had done what he had set out to do, which was save God's people from their sins. And in that beautiful moment when we trust in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, what happens is that we are clothed in the beautiful perfections of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the fullness of his mission is completed. He was, he was absolutely successful. Jesus paid it all. And the only thing that we must do is trust in Him to be saved. You see how different that is from the gospel that the Judaizers were teaching. Paul says, don't fall for their teaching when they slip in some works into the idea of salvation. They're preaching another gospel. And Paul says, listen, you can trust me with this. You can trust me that I can spot this. I know the smell of a false gospel because I personally believed this gospel once. I personally was one of those kind of teachers. Paul does something very rare in this passage. He actually uses himself negatively as an example. As an illustration of the kind of confidence that he used to take in himself to gain a standing before the Lord. And he says, listen, if there's anyone that comes to you and says... We have confidence in ourselves and in our works to gain a standing and position with God. I want you to know that whatever it is or whoever it is that comes to you and says that, I have more reasons to be confident in myself. He says, let me give you seven. Let me give you seven reasons why I have more confidence than I believe anyone out there to have confidence in the flesh. I was circumcised on the eighth day. Now that may not mean a lot to you. As you hear that this morning, okay, he was circumcised on the eighth day. But for a Jew, in the time in which the apostle Paul was being raised, this was a marker of inclusion. He wasn't, for instance, an Ishmaelite who was, who was circumcised when he was 13 years old. He wasn't like a Gentile who was circumcised later if he was converting to Judaism. He was one that was on the, on the inside right from the very beginning. He was also of the people of Israel. He was of the people of Israel. He was homegrown. He, he, was, he was one of the town's boys. He, he was a part of God's covenant people. He didn't come in from the outside. He, he didn't do what some of us like to do and say, oh, I'm distantly related to somebody important. And we sort of gather some, some appreciation and respect through that. No, the Apostle Paul says, I was born into importance. I was a part of the people of Israel. More than that, he says, I was a part of the tribe of Benjamin. A part of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin, of course, was the favored son of, of Jacob and, and Rachel. 
the tribe of Benjamin received the best plot of land from any of the tribes of Israel. Their precincts included Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. They had the choicest of land. It was even from this tribe that the very first king of Israel came from. That's King Saul. And it's likely that this Paul, who was originally Saul of Tarsus, his original name likely is named after that first king of Israel. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. He's also, he says, fourthly, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's racially pure, if I can put it this way. He's no mudblood. He's no mixed breed. He's unalloyed Hebrew blood. That's what's coursing through his veins. He knows all of the customs. He knows the language. He knows the mores. But fifthly, he was, as to the law, a Pharisee. The Pharisees, the most distinguished and prestigious religious group in the first century among the Jews. Devoted to the law, devoted to piety. They were considered the most respected religious group of the day. Paul was a part of them. And as to his zeal, point six, he was a persecutor of the church. Now you might say to yourself, well that's really something to be you know, excited about, to be prideful about. Well, it would have been if you're coming from his vantage point. As, as one who believed in the sanctity of Judaism, as one who was seeking to maintain his distinctiveness as an Israelite and follower of Yahweh, anyone who was teaching about this Christ, who had come in from the outside in his way of thinking, this aberrant form of teaching, he was so zealous that he was willing to destroy those who would try to come in and taint the sanctity of what he believed and the religious order of the Jews. You might remember in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen, the first martyr, was killed. It was Saul, we're told, who approved of that killing. He was zealous, even a persecutor of the church. And then seventhly, he says, listen, I, under the law, if you're just looking at me under the law, I was blameless. I was blameless. Now, when Paul says that, he doesn't mean... I used to think I was without sin. No, even as a Pharisee, even as a, a Jew, Paul would have known he wasn't without sin. But what he means is if you had looked at him from the outside and you had gone commandment by commandment, law by law, and evaluated him in terms of that law, you would have said, this guy's squeaky clean. We don't have anything on this guy. Now, as you think about these seven distinctives of Paul's flesh, Reasons for him to be self-confident or trusting in his works and ability. It's quite a impressive resume, isn't it? Are you impressed? Don't be, Paul says. He says, don't be. Because it's not what it seems. It's not what it seems. Listen, if anyone comes in and tells you that you've got to be this or do this in order to be accepted of God, I want you to know I've been there. I've done that. I got the t-shirt. And the t-shirt doesn't fit. It doesn't work. I was one of those guys before I met the Lord Jesus Christ. But in meeting the Lord Jesus Christ, I realized that I had salvation all wrong. In fact, what happened to me was that I was using all of these things. My pedigree. My education. 
my accomplishments, my success, my respectability in the eyes of others. I was using all of my law-keeping as a means by which to try to earn capital with God. And all of the time, the Apostle Paul, what I was actually doing was building more of a deficit. That's all I was doing. You see, that's Paul's point in verses 7 to 10 in our passage, he actually gives to us what we might call a spiritual audit. He says, when I met the Lord Jesus Christ, the ledger of my life entirely flipped. The things that I used to think were assets. The things that I used to look to and say, I'm really something. God's lucky to have me on his team. The things I used to look at and say, these set me apart. These make me elite or distinct. I now realize actually were stumbling blocks to me knowing God. Because I was relying upon them. I was looking to them. I was trusting to them. But then when I met the Lord Jesus Christ, I realized. Notice that economic language he uses. I noticed the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Now when you hear me say things like education and godly background and doing good works, I I don't want you to hear, oh, Paul's against all of those things, isn't he? No, no, no. Paul in other contexts, speaking in different ways, will be very positive about such things. You remember in 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 5, as he's speaking to Timothy and he's commending of Timothy's strong faith, He says to Timothy, listen, the reason you have that strong faith is in part contributed to the fact that you had a godly grandmother named Lois and you had a godly mother named Eunice. And God used these means to bring about a strong faith in you. He's commending of those things. We read all of the Apostle Paul's letters and we we find command after command to do good works. He instructs us in those things. If we're looking at them in the right way, all of these things are absolutely blessings. But if we treat those things as if they are the foundation of the Christian life, if we treat those things as if they are the substance of our relationship with God, if we see them as cobbling together our personal credibility, then we're barking up the wrong tree. We're barking up the wrong tree. We've fallen into the trap of the Judaizers. We are seeking a righteousness that comes from the law. That's the language of verse 9. I want to ask you to imagine yourself for just a moment standing before the Lord and Him asking you, why is it that I should let you into my heaven? Why should I, is it that I should invite you into my kingdom or to be a part of my New heavens and new earth. And you respond like with something that is along the lines of, I've, well, I've been really good. I've tried really hard. I've done pretty well with my finances and my resources. I've, I mean, I've had a difficult marriage, but I think as far as the marriage has gone, I've been pretty supportive. And, and yes, out of my three children, only one rebelled. And the, the other two uh, have viable jobs and um, I think are upstanding uh, citizens, as best as I can tell. And um, I, imagine this, Lord, imagine this. I taught middle school boys Sunday school for 10 years. Now, who can say that? Not many people can say that. So, Lord, I, I don't know all of what you're asking me, but I just, 
I put that before you and I just say, you know. Now all of us, I think, watching today, will be able to say, I think he's setting this up as the wrong answer. You're, you're right, you're on to something. I am setting this up as the wrong answer. None of us would want to respond this way, especially those who know that the answer is we should claim the Lord Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. No, you're right. That Sunday school answer is correct. But why is it then that we often live our lives as if the meaning of our lives, the value of our lives, the credibility of our persons is based on these kinds of things? I mean functionally. I mean day to day. Think of the things that you have a tendency to take pride in. Like the Apostle Paul saying here with the things of which he took pride in. What are those things for you? Do you, do you, do you sit on your, your front porch and you, you, you think of the house that you have? You think of the benchmarks of success that you've been able to acquire? You think of all of the nice things that you've been able to enjoy, and you think to yourself, self, I've done pretty good. I've done pretty good. You look at your family, and you look at your husband or your wife, and you think to yourself, hey, we're, we're doing the best we can with what it is we have, and it's pretty good. And, and I've, I've tried to parent my children as best as I know how, and, well, if you saw my neighbor's kids, they, um, they're They're terrible. They're completely out of control. And, and my kids, they, 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 they actually sit sometimes, except during worship, at home. But they sit most of the other times when I ask them to. I must be doing something right. How many of us have sat back and thought, I'm a really kind and thoughtful person. People like to be with me. I think I bring a, a, a sense of a sense of meaning and well-being to others who are around. And if more people were like me... The world would be a, such a better place. Th these are the kinds of thoughts and many others that run through our lives. And we, we, we tell ourselves these stories about who we are. And we're simply, we're, we're simply garnering pride and confidence in the flesh. That's what we're doing. We're looking to the world to feel good about ourselves. Maybe for some of you, you go, well, I look at all of those things and I feel utterly defeated. I mean, have you looked at the stock market lately? I feel utterly defeated. Uh, all the benchmarks of my success have taken a big hit, and I'm now down in the dumps. I feel terrible about myself. Fathers and mothers out there, you know, as you, before the quarantine, because you can't take your children to Kroger now, but before the quarantine, when you took your children to Kroger, and that one day, that one day, that little Johnny melted down in the cereal aisle. And you thought to yourself, the award for mother or father of the year is hanging in the balance right now. Or you have a rebellious teenager, God forbid, who is embarrassing you. Ma making you feel like you're not a good parent. And actually you find yourself more worried about how this reflects on you than even caring as much as you ought to about their soul. And you find yourself worrying far more than praying. 
You see, sometimes when we look at the ways in which we're depressed and of which we are defeated, or the ways in which we've taken pride, what we realize is that we're no different from what the Apostle Paul is warning against in Philippians chapter 3. We could go on and on with the examples and the realities of how often we face these things. And the Apostle Paul says, I want to tell you, friends, that's no way to live. When I met the Lord Jesus Christ, what I came to know was that way of life was loss. He actually uses an extremely strong, even offensive word when he uses the word rubbish. He says, I count them as, as rubbish. Some of you who might have an older translation might read the word dung in that context. That's closer to what the Apostle Paul is saying. He says, listen, if you live in confidence in the flesh, if you live vacillating between pride and despair and defeat, always looking to the things of the world, what it is you're going to find is every day is a test as to whether or not you're worth it. As to whether or not you're valuable. As to whether or not you matter. And friends, let's be honest, if we're going to put a grade on that test there's not a one of us that passes. Because when you look at the requirements of God's holiness in the Word, it's not merely that you do the right thing externally or you deceive enough people into thinking you're a good person. The Scriptures say that we sin even when we do the right thing and we do it for selfish motives. When we go into worship... And we're singing at the top of our lungs. And we're focused more upon us and what we want than we are actually focused upon God. We are finding that we are turning the things of this world into things about us rather than things about Him. You know, that's one of the things I believe the Lord is actually teaching us during this time. He's stripping away the things we love, isn't He? I mean, how many of you this morning are like, this is not the same. This, this is not the same. I appreciate what Nate and Ben and Greg and, and so many are trying to do. They're, they're trying to help us worship, but I just want to be back in my pew. I, I just want to be back in that sanctuary. I want to get back to normal life because that's where I feel at home. Those are the things that make me know that I'm really a part, that I'm comfortable there. And God is saying, nothing has changed about this gospel in Philippians 3, whether you're sitting on your couch or you're sitting in your pew. He says, do not, do not mix the trappings of the earthly things to the substance of the gospel. That's what he's saying. He's calling us into a time of pruning, into a time to cut away the fat that's encumbering our souls and laboring us. Because he wants us to run with endurance. He wants us to run speedily towards the finish line where Jesus Christ is. The Apostle Paul is saying to us today, listen friends, there's nothing more to be accomplished. There's nothing more to be accomplished. Jesus has done it all. All that you must do is put your trust in Him. He has paid the penalty. He has been victorious over the grave. 
When that registered for Martin Luther in the 16th century, it was, well, it was for him a resurrection. It was a picture of the power of the resurrection that Paul mentions here in the text. Luther had been so weighed down with guilt. He had tried so hard, like the Apostle Paul, by becoming a monk and by flagellating himself and doing lots of good deeds in order to try to appease a conscience. And he got to the end of that journey and he was, he was lost, he was desperate, he was broken until he's reading the book of Romans. And he learns that the righteousness of God doesn't come from the law. The righteousness of God comes by faith in Jesus Christ alone. It registers with him. And, and Martin Luther says it was like it was like a dawning. It was like a resurrection morn to me. The power of the life of Christ flooded into my soul. He says it was like I entered the gates of paradise. It was as if he was in the new heavens and the new earth. He had come into the most beautiful reality. He had come into the reality of all realities. He had come into the gospel. Friends, today as we worship a risen Savior and as we remember and I pray come to know at a deeper level the reality of the truth of this gospel. I pray today that through the changing circumstances, through the oddness of what the Lord is putting us through right now, the trials that we're facing, that a little light is breaking into your heart in a new and fresh way. Ask yourself, what is being revealed in your heart and life through this season of quarantine and fear? Some of you may be saying to yourself, I was a nicer person before the quarantine. I was easier to get along with. I didn't have as many troubles. You know that's a lie, don't you? The quarantine and this season of fear is only revealing who you really are. Oh, well, Nate, that, I can't think of myself that way. You must think of yourself that way. And you must run with yourself to Christ. You must run with yourself to Christ. You must take who you really are to Christ. Don't pretend. Don't try to perform yourself out of it. Take yourself to Christ. He is enough. And find like Luther... I pray in a revival of your own soul and the revival of all of our souls. Let's pray like Luther that something like the power of the resurrection dawns afresh or maybe even for the first time upon our hearts. Friends, let's let this Easter not be one where we moan about what we don't have. Let this Easter be what Easter is always about. What we have. Because to have Christ is to have all. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we would ask you now to teach us this truth into the deep recesses of our hearts. That it would not merely become for us another nice lesson on the gospel, but that it would become a transformative power of resurrection. Would you now, even through the preaching of your word, bring dead men to life? Would you break through the callousness and the resentment of so many hearts that have become dull to the realities of the gospel? Would you begin to awaken your church here at Cornerstone across our nation, across the world? Would you attend the power of the gospel in a mighty way across this globe until Jesus' name 
is glorified over every square inch of human existence until every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. We pray this in His holy and powerful name. Amen.